0: The following sermon was delivered on March 28, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Mature Minister on 1 Timothy 4, 12, and 13. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Please note that toward the end of this recording, Dr. Piper's microphone got dislodged from his lapel, and so the volume level drops off significantly. Thank you.
1: There are many things in life that we do or want to do for which we have to, on the front end, exhibit what I'm going to call competency. What do I mean by competency? Well, when your young people play sports when you're young, everybody gets on the team. Everybody gets to play. But as you get older in sports, you get up into secondary school, it's no longer that way. At least it didn't used to be that way. No, Now you have to try out for the team or try out for the band or try out for the play in the school. And in that tryout, you're going to exhibit, manifest certain competencies, levels of ability that will allow you to take part in those activities. It doesn't stop with school many things in life. You want to be uh, an administrative assistant, you're going to have, to have a certain competency at typing. Uh, you want to be uh, an electrician, you have to go through your training and your apprenticeship and you've got to pass certain tests for competency. If you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, there's tests that stand behind licensing. So many things in life, we have to exhibit competency. Above all, In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who is going to be the minister of God's people, needs to manifest competency before he enters into the ministry. And that's really what Paul is teaching us here in our text tonight, which is the first two verses of this concluding paragraph, verses 12 and 13. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Paul lays out here the competency of a minister. Now, oftentimes, as you go to seminary and we uh, examine a man for ministry, we're looking for competency in those areas of skill, and that's important. Uh, languages, grasp of Scripture, I'm on the trace. Uh, examination committee. We were there at 11 o'clock. Thursday night, we be back again tomorrow night looking for competency in the men that enter into the ministry. But often as we do so, we forget that there is a basic competency that is more important than those skills and even the theological knowledge. And that's where Paul is beginning here in verse 12. But as we see the parallel the minister is to have competency here so he can be a model for the people of God. Where are we? Well, uh, in chapters 2 and 3, Paul has dealt with the structuring of the church down to the great message of the incarnation. In chapter 4, now he addresses more narrowly and particularly the work of the minister of the gospel. So first we looked uh, that the minister must be prepared to deal with false doctrine and heresy that will be in the church in every age from the ascension of Christ until his return. And because that's difficult, Paul then goes on to discuss what I call the habits of the godly minister. He's nourished by the word of God, that he um, is uh, faithful in the exercise uh, of that ministry that God has given unto him by discipline, and that he then perseveres and endures. He concluded that section and as I mentioned, some Bibles put, prescribe and teach these things at the beginning of the section we're considering tonight. Others put it at the end, and I think it's best at the end. Uh, prescribe and teach these things. So the minister is to be teaching these things to the congregation. They're to be his habits, but they're to be our habits as well. But now he addresses a problem, and it's addressing the problem, or at least in Timothy's case, the imagined problem, that Paul lays out this matter of competency or maturity for the gospel ministry. And so the gospel minister must be mature and competent, pattern of godliness for the people of God as he diligently labors at his calling or work. He must be a pattern of godliness for the congregation as he works diligently at his work or his calling. And we're simply going to consider those two things. In verse 12, Paul says that the mature, competent minister is to be a pattern for godliness. In verse 13, he says that such a minister is diligently to work uh, in his calling. Well, the first point then, to be a pattern of godliness. Notice how Paul begins this in verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. I imagine that some of us here tonight would be glad to be called young at 40. Um, It seems that's probably, if you estimate, when Timothy started with Paul, in the time of Paul's ministry to now that he is in, uh, in prison probably, um, he's probably 40 years old. Uh, but in many cultures, 40 years old was still a young man. Uh, and you add to that, as we've already noted, and we'll see later, Timi- Timothy's own diffidence, a kind of a backwardness, a shyness, a, a holding back. Uh, and so Paul was addressing that. Whether it was a real problem, or whether it was an imagined problem, Paul is saying, Timothy, you must not be timid in the exercise of your ministry. You must not allow people then, either in your mind or in reality, to look down on your youthfulness or what they might consider in experience. So how then does a young minister, or any minister as far as that goes, how does such a one demonstrate competence? Paul says that you are to be, we are to be patterns of godliness. Comes at the end of the New American Standard, but actually in the Greek, it's the first part of the verse. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, uh, but rather be an example of those who believe. Word that Paul uses, for example, means a, a, a type or a pattern. It could be a blueprint by which uh, you build something. It could be a recipe by which you make something. It could be a mold into which you pour something to, to shape it. It's clearly a pattern that should have a, a, a marked result in its consequences. That's what we have here. To be a pattern of godliness for those who believe. In other words, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The minister is to be a pattern, a mold. He must be able to say, as Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. Or as he would uh, say also in uh, Philippians chapter 3. Using the same word that we have here uh, in our text. Uh, Brethren, verse 17, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul says, I've set the example. Those I bring with me set the example. Those we set up set the example. There's a pattern for godliness. Now that pattern here is obviously more than these six things, but these would be the six non-negotiable, so to speak, the six primary aspects of the pattern. Now I say six uh, in your ESV or your New American Standard. There's only five. If you have a new King James, there is a sixth one, and I prefer that text, so we'll deal with that. I read it as I read. It's the fourth in Paul's list. But Here are the six things that mark the pattern, the blueprint for uh, the godly competent pastor. Paul begins with obviously what we would think is important for the pastor, and that is in your speech not talking here, though, about the ability uh, to speak, talking about the content of our speech and its importance. As he says uh, to all of us in Ephesians chapter 4, as we are new men and women in Christ, uh, he cautions us, verse 25, lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor or remembers one of the other. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Chapter 5, verse 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. It's a good summary of wholesome speech. Uh, You can look at it later in Proverbs chapter 15. In my Bible, that's what I've written, how to give and receive words. And we must be able to give and receive words, and our speech must be that then which is godly and edifying to others and not the venting of anger, surely not deceit or coarseness or coarse jesting, as Paul says here. Coupled with our speech, obviously, is our behavior. That's what he means now by conduct. Our conduct is to be also a pattern to the congregation. And there again, in Ephesians chapter 4, as he deals with the Christian's walk, that we're not to walk as the world, we're to walk as new people in Christ. He says there in 5.3, Let immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And of course, we just looked at First Timothy chapter 3. Paul deals with the qualifications of office bearers in the church. He has all those things in mind now when he talks about the conduct. It is to be a conduct that is consistent with the qualifications that I've read or that are laid out there, above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money and covetousness. This is what Paul means by conduct, that to be a consistency in the behavior of the minister of the gospel. And then he adds love kind of tucked here in the middle of this. But remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, he tells us that the goal of our instruction is love. It's love for God. It's love for our neighbor. That's why I chose that summary of the law of God, that we're to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Or as we sang there, perhaps you noticed the repetition of love. in, In Psalm 119, three times there, the psalmist Uh, Deals with how we are to uh, exercise uh, love. Verse 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Verse 165, those who love your law have great peace. And then 167, my soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. This love for God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit when we are born again is that distinguishing mark. It is the bridesmaid. It is, it is the twin of faith, Paul says, that faith receives Christ, and faith works through love, and love manifests uh, that we indeed are resting in Christ, and it does so by keeping the law of God. And so our Savior says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's by our obedience then. From hearts of love toward God that we manifest uh, our love to God. And then the majority text used in the New King James has spirit. And obviously the role of the Holy Spirit in the walk of the minister is very important. We're to be filled with the Spirit. We're to be in step with the Spirit. We are to walk with the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work inside us that breeds these wonderful Fruit of the Spirit, grace, uh, love, joy, peace, uh, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, uh, gentleness, self-control, these are products, supernatural products of the Spirit's work in our lives, and they must be there. Joined with the Spirit, we then have the matter of faith. The competent minister must be a man of faith, a man who believes the Word of God, who takes God seriously in his word and banks on that word uh, and does not waffle, as James says in James chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. I will start with 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man not to expect he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The competent minister cannot be one that's driven about here with doubt and fear and and, uh, constant turmoil. Must be one who, by the Spirit, is settled on the foundation of God's promises and rests there and operates on that basis. And that brings then to uh, Paul's, uh, last um, competency test, and that is purity. And we dealt with purity in First Timothy 3 as part of being the husband of one wife, but Paul will come back to it in the next chapter, verse 2, where he speaks of how we're to relate to those in the congregation, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's Perhaps the most scandalous thing today in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the failure of ministers to relate in purity to those in the congregation. And yet it's a significant mark of competency that we uh, treat uh, the women in the congregation as mothers and sisters, well I have to do it as sisters and daughters, but anyway, (laughs) uh, that's very important. Now we have three classes of people here tonight, at least, maybe four. There are a number of ministers here tonight and each of us is to come back to the competency test periodically and uh, examine ourselves by Scripture, by these six headings, and uh, seek God's grace that we grow in conformity to these things if we're going to have a blessed ministry. There's also a number of young men here tonight who are preparing for the ministry, and uh, this becomes all the more important then. This is your kind of daily checklist. It's not just your grades in seminary. It's not what you learn in the classroom. All that's important. But undergirding all of that is this necessity of having a character that is pleasing to God. For God will bless holiness much more than he blesses gifts. And so now is the time to be aware of these things, to be conscious of these things, to be aware of the things in your life that you need to address and do so. But then you'll notice that what Paul says here is, is that the minister is to be the pattern for godliness for those who believe. And so you see how this this competency test then speaks to each one of you as you sit here tonight? Is it not God's will for everyone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you manifest these six things in your daily walk? And so I want you as you sit here to also examine yourself, your speech. Is your speech out in public? Is your speech... At the workplace, or in your circle of friends, or in the family, is your speech, speech that edifies or tears down, speech that is gross and uh, uh, callous, or speech that builds up and promotes purity. How you speak uh, to your brothers and your sisters, very important. Uh, How you live, your lifestyle. You live in a lifestyle in the workplace and in the family that reflects the godliness that Christ has purchased for us as his people. And that uh, you would not be ashamed if people knew that you were a member of a church or perhaps even an office bearer in the church. We've dealt with love, but each of us needs to come back to love. We're all in danger of being like the church in Ephesus, and we've lost our first love, love for God and love for one another. Now we need to meditate on God's love for us, the great sacrifice of Calvary, and ask God to use that to breed a, a growing love in us of gratitude and blessing for him and uh, a love for, for one another. And of course, we can do nothing if we're not led by the Spirit. Are you in each day, during the day, beginning of the day, during the day... Asking the Spirit to fill you? Are you seeking to live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit so you can walk in step with the Spirit? Faith. You must be in the Word to have faith. You must know the promises of God, but are you asking God to make you stable and not driven about by this problem and that worry and and that different fear Uh, and impurity? The great scourge of our age is impurity. The accessibility... Uh, to the public now, to young people, with that which is impure. But there's many older men and women now that are caught up in this trap of impurity. And uh, we need to examine ourselves. Now, as you do so, you'll not be satisfied. Not One of us here should be satisfied. I'm not satisfied. None of these ministers are satisfied. None of you should be satisfied. It drives us back to Christ for two things drives us to Christ for pardon, daily cleansing, but for power. Because the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, indwells us. There is no sin. There's no pattern. There's no habit that cannot be overcome by the Spirit of Christ working in us. But perhaps there are some here this evening, and you don't have these things, and you know you don't have any of them. What does that mean, what does that say about you that you would have not these six marks? It means most likely you're not converted. It means that you don't have a new heart that's been given to you by the Lord God, which means that you are under God's wrath and condemnation. You're headed straight to hell. But the reason I say that is the same reason your doctor would tell you, you know, you've got a tumor. I've got to cut it out. You've got a sin problem. You're under wrath. But the gospel is the great answer. God gave his son to take away the penalty of sin, and it's for anyone who will come to him. God turns no one away. And So if this afternoon you are convicted, perhaps you've already had a weight of guilt, you've been aware That you are separated from God. You are aware of of your sinfulness and your corruption and your evil desires. The Spirit is probing like a doctor. But I tell you, your hope is in Christ Jesus. You repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God does these things for us, he turns none away. Doesn't matter. You've been a hypocrite, you fooled all kinds of people, it doesn't matter. God loves to save sinners, and throws his arms wide open to anyone who comes to him. Well, that's something of the competency with respect to the spiritual maturity of the minister and what he patterns for the congregation. leads us to the second thing. We move now to skill sets, so to speak, and rest of the chapter until verse 16 will deal with the development now of uh, gifts and skills. But there also must be a maturity and a competency. And so the the mature minister must labor diligently at his calling. And in verse 13, Paul summarizes the entire public work of the ministry under these two headings. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, their exhortation, and teaching. Notice again that theme. He's already said this once in verse 15. He hopes to come to them of uh, chapter three verse fifteen. He hopes to come soon, but in case he's delayed, here's how you ought to conduct yourself. Now he says, uh, here's how you ought to conduct yourself once again. Here is how you are to behave in my absence until I come. Give attention. Interesting. This word "give attention" is the word of, uh, of chapter three of being uh, addicted to wine. It is to be obsessed. He says, I want you to be addicted to this public ministry to which God has called you. And it's summarized under these two headings. So the first is, be addicted to, be diligent about this matter of the public reading of scripture. Now, our Bibles, at least the New American Standard, puts in both uh, the word public and scripture in italics, which means that they're not in the text, but this is clearly the meaning of the text. This word reading here is used primarily in the New Testament for the reading of Scripture in corporate worship. It was a synagogue pattern. Uh, We know this. We see it in the ministry of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 15. They're now at Pisidian Antioch. After reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and said, Our Savior observed the same thing in the Gospel of Luke. Paul told the Colossian church at the end of that letter to them When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church at Laodicea. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. That the New Testament church picked up the pattern of the synagogue and read the scriptures in public worship. One other example would be Revelation chapter three. And there uh, in this uh, opening thing, verse three is the promise, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. And so public reading of the scripture was a very important part of the public work of the minister and of the worship of the congregation. I trust you remember that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 5, the first two elements of worship mentioned are the public reading of scripture and the preaching of sermons, and then the conscionable listening to the word of God preached. And so public reading of scripture is an essential part of the worship of the church and the early church followed the synagogue pattern and read from the law, and from the prophets, and from the Gospels then, and from the epistles. And the Reformation restored this practice to a very high level. So in the Westminster Directory of Worship, we're told then that every service there should be reading both from the Old and New Testament. Now, most have done that chronologically. And in places where the Gospel is new or the congregation is weak, that is by far the best thing to do we follow what I call the biblical theological reading, and that is we read from both testaments um, passages that will highlight one another in the unfolding plan of redemption. What we're doing so, you understand this is not a pedagogical device, it's an act of worship. A pedagogical device is the fact of why you might choose a specific passage in the same way of reading the law. So we're reading the law, we're reading other Old Testament passage, and we're reading the New Testament because this is the expectation of God for his church. Now as it comes then to the minister, and and this, by the way, is why then we do this in our service. Why we have Old Covenant reading, Old Testament reading, and New Testament reading, as well as a reading from the law. So Paul is saying now that the minister is to have a certain competency in reading Scripture out loud. Duh. I've sat through a lot of it. <laughs> it takes practice. It takes preparation. It takes diligence. It's not I I, I go to a lot of churches and it's like a somebody in, in a roller derby. You don't even have time to open your Bible before they start reading, and by the time you find the place, they're almost finished. No, but to read is the first part, it, it's 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 in, in part exegetical. The reading should be some degree interpretive and with some interest so that God's people, even without following the words written, are able to profit from that which is read. In other words, it's an act, that's a very important part of leading worship. Because of that, this is a figure of speech where the part is put for the whole. And by saying you must devote yourself to the reading, Paul is simply saying the minister is to devote himself to leading public worship. Believe me in the New Testament there was no minister of worship let alone a minister of youth. The minister was called to the work of the sacraments and the word. Now there can be divided responsibilities as long as that's part of his calling of mentoring and pastoral care discipleship and whatever. But it's the minister who's to lead worship and you put this what we saw in chapter 2 It is to be the minister, the ruling elder, and then men being prepared. That's what we do here. And that's why that Zach and Johan and others as they come along will participate in leading public worship because we are helping them learn to do that with a competency that will be honoring to God and blessed in the congregation. And so we're to devote ourselves to this work of leading public worship, and that entails preparation. Preparation of the order of service and what fits where and and why do you use this scripture or that psalm or that hymn. Preparation in terms of our prayers and the various aspects of prayer and and prepared in prayer so that we can carry the congregation along. So he says, be devoted to uh, reading scripture. And then... Whereas reading scripture is put for the whole, here he gives us the whole, and that he takes the two essential parts of preaching be devoted to exhortation uh, and uh, teaching. And these are the two parts of preaching. As he'll say later in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and instruction. It's the best sentence in all the world on what preaching should be and what preaching should do. Uh, And so we are to expound the Word of God, which means we are to teach the Word of God, to open it up. And yes, notice Paul's emphasis here is on application, as it is there as well. That's to be done with patience, not browbeating, and always based upon the clear exposition and explanation of the Word of God. We must always move from exposition to application. And this takes great skill. Exposition by itself is a tedious task, and it doesn't come easy to go from the text to its exegesis to a, a homiletical outline and, and put it in a way that people can follow and, and understand. And Application is ten times harder. They will really get to the preacher's heart and to the heart of the hearers. It's not a list of observations. No, it's moving beyond the observations to the use and to the probing questions and to the commandments and after Christ, the hope that is in him. This is the great work of the ministry. It's basically a summary of what the apostles say in in Acts chapter 6. Get some deacons. We must be devoted to prayer and the word. Public prayer, yes, but now this work must, of course, be undergirded with prayer. We must be men of prayer. Your pastor must be a man of prayer. Elders must be men of prayer, or the church will not prosper. Of prayer and of the word. And then the public ministry is undergirded by careful pastoral visitation and mentoring and discipleship. So, Paul lays out for us what a competent minister should look like, how we should examine ourselves, what, what are the goals here for us and for men that prepare for the ministry. Well, he says that the mature minister must be the pattern of godliness as he diligently labors in his calling. A godly man who can say to the congregation with a good conscience, follow me as I follow Christ. That's not a sinless man. The very first step of doing that is knowing how to say, I'm wrong, forgive me. I sinned, forgive me. And then a competent man in the exercise of his gifts, particularly in the public gifts of leading worship, and of preaching the Word of God. So as I've said, this is for all of us in different ways. For those of us who are ministers, here's our daily checklist. Pilot gets in the plane and before he ever takes off, he does a checklist and must do an outside list, an inside list, and that's very important, isn't it? We must have a daily checklist as ministers. As men preparing for the ministry, you need to be uh, at this checklist, looking for those areas to address. But of course, as you will consider, sometimes you might move or whatever. Here are the marks of the church you want to be a part of it's not the youth program, it's not the music program, it's not the aesthetics of the building. No, it is a competent minister, a godly minister who in a godly way, a spiritual way leads worship and preaches the word of God. But one more thing, dear friends. Next Lord's Day, we come to the Lord's table. What I want you to do this week, as I will do so this week, is to take these six competency tests and by the spirit of Christ, examine yourself in order to prepare to come to the Lord's table, that you're not deliberately holding on to any sin, But also then, as you come to the Lord's table, to come aware. This is something I need grace for. Take hold of Christ next week. have thought through, prayed through some of these things, and come now and take hold of Christ in that bread and wine and ask Him for spiritual strength increasingly to die to that particular sin or issue. Because that is how God uses the Lord's table.